Hopefully, we have learned over the last year that refineries are national assets. They're important to our communities. They're important for good jobs. And they're important to supplying the fuels that we need as a country to thrive. We don't call it a transition. We call it an evolution. This is Energy Cast, and I'm Jay Downhower. Today we're talking about the role oil and gas refining makes in our lives. It's the step from well to the pump that doesn't get much attention, but a very public spat between the Biden administration and industry leaders earlier this summer brought the role they play into the forefront. It started, as you can imagine, with pressure on the White House to do something about high gas prices. As you know, energy has been the leading factor in the inflation we've all experienced in the past year. In June, President Biden Biden sent a letter to a few refining companies accusing them of having, quote, historically high profit margins and calling for them to take immediate actions to increase supply. That same day, in a joint response, the two largest industry associations responded that the accusations were not so simple. They also claimed that these companies endured financial losses despite keeping up operations during the pandemic. A week later, industry leaders met with the Secretary of Energy. My guest is the president and CEO of the association that represents the refining industry. Industry leaders met with Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm. While the conversation was constructive, he says the administration's policies send two very conflicting messages. As my guest explains, probably no other industry has more constraints on expanding capacity than the refining industry. There hasn't been a new refinery built in this country since the mid-1970s, and it's unlikely anyone would dare invest the tens of billions of dollars to build a new one. And yet, the industry is expected to keep our economy humming along affordably and at the same time completely transition off fossil fuels. It would be like asking Tesla to max out their daily capacity of EVs while forcing them to convert their product line to hydrogen fuel cells. Few other industries experience this kind of pressure. It's one of these reasons we should listen to this refiner's response. My guest today is Chet Thompson, President and CEO of the American Fuel and Petrochemical Manufacturers, a trade association based in Washington, D.C. Chet has served in the role since 2015. During the Bush 43 years, he served as Deputy General Counsel for the EPA, which he discussed in the interview. He's also been named one of D.C.'s top lobbyists. I could have asked a hundred more questions, and you'll see we ran the gamut of topics, both current and general. I also thought it was kind of Chet to look me up and see that I'd spent a few years out in the oil patch. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Chet Thompson. We're here with Chet Thompson, president and CEO of the American Fuel and Petrochemical Manufacturers, and Chet. <laughs> There's been a lot of disagreement about the price of gasoline these days. The oil and gas industry have said the administration's policies have not helped where crude oil and fuel prices are concerned. The administration has singled out refining capacity in particular, implying that the refining industry could increase supply. And that leads us to you guys. So let's start there. Is there any extra refining capacity that is not being tapped, as the administration's seeming to hint. 
Well, let me first start off, Jay, and thank you for having me. It's an honor. You do great work, and I'm happy to be a part of that. So, yes, we are on the list of entities that this administration has pointed a finger at. Their list has changed over time, but we're certainly on the list. And one of their assertions is that, you know, refiners aren't doing our part to help out with fuel prices. And we certainly disagree with that. The data speaks for itself, Jay. If you look, our refiners have been running all out. And by running all out, certainly well north of 92, 93 percent utilization. And again, as you know, from your background, that is running hard. Basically, if you have a unit right now in the country that can refine crude oil into petroleum products, you're working right now. You're running. The market is such that the economic incentive is such that we'd be running all out. So this notion that we're not doing our part is absolutely false. And I think most of the folks in the administration realize that and are trying to separate the pure politics from the realities of what's happening in the energy market. Right now. Let's talk about how U.S. refining capacity has changed over the years and whether more refineries should be considered here at home. What do you think about that? It would seem that permitting for new refining capacity would have to be a pretty steep hill to climb. That's correct. But, you know, look, we have right now about 18 million barrels a day of pure refining capacity, you know, give or take. And what a lot of folks don't appreciate, Jay, is we're actually refining more gasoline and diesel every day than the country uses. It's not accurate that the jam that we're in is exclusively because of a lack of refining. Now, that said, we have lost a little north of, I think, 1.1 million barrels a day of refining capacity over the last three years. The majority of that occurred during the COVID crisis when demand absolutely fell through the floor. But we are finding more product than we use. The problem is crude and refined products, these are global commodities. And it's not just our market that matters. Whereas the United States, Jay, has lost one point one million barrels a day, the world has lost three million. So we are a little bit short on refined products, but by far and away the biggest driver of fuel prices right now, and has been over the course of this high fuel year, has been the price of crude. And as the world has emerged from COVID, certainly the demand for crude has outstripped supply. And crude oil is to us what flour is to a baker, Jay. So the refining complex, we don't benefit from high crude prices. These are inputs to us. Crude oil is traditionally somewhere in the mid 50s to 60% of the cost at the pump because of the price of crude. And that's the main driver right now. And it has been basically forever. To what extent does plateauing gasoline demand stem from EVs or more efficient vehicles? I would assume that's created a little bit of a chilling effect on adding extra capacity and maybe in a little bit we can get into some of these what we call ESG requirements. I mean, it seems like it would be hard to get capital financing, right? If you're building a refinery, right? Well, yeah, the years before COVID, we saw a near plateauing of gasoline demand in particular. It's called about 143 billion gallons was the annual demand for fuel. And that had flattened out a little bit. And I would attribute that mostly to automobile fuel efficiency standards. Cars are far more efficient than they used used to be. And so that has impacted demand. Now, the growth of the industry, we had about 19 million barrels a day at capacity in 2019, 2020. We were able to meet U.S. demand and then export the rest, particularly to Mexico, other places in Latin America. So our big driver of the flattening was certainly fuel efficiency. As you've alluded, we have not had a new refinery built in this country since the mid-1970s. 
Now, we've had expansions. It's easier to expand the capacity of an existing facility than it is to build a greenfield site. Now, I don't want to be pessimistic, but I would be hard-pressed to see a new refinery built unless things change dramatically. And Jay, part of that is, like I said, we have plenty of refining capacity at the moment, but the otherwise a broader environment that we face out there, one from a regulatory permitting standpoint, as you alluded to, very, very difficult to get anything permitted and across the finish line, think Keystone, right? And then certainly you mentioned ESNG. This administration has certainly created a tenor and an attitude that's anti-fossil fuel and that's impacted the capital markets. It's impacted our ability to get the investments that we need. We're a long cycle business. And so I can't imagine anyone that would wanna make the tens of billions of dollars of investment needed to build a new greenfield site and unless they saw the time horizon for these investments to be recouped. And this administration does not do a very good job of convincing our industry that that investment would be a wise investment at the moment. No doubt. What's involved in bringing more capacity online? Is most of this closed capacity simply sitting idle or was it decommissioned? I just had an episode where I talked to the head of the European Coal Association about bringing on all those coal plants in Europe, for instance, right? Let me start off by saying the 1.1 million barrels that shut down in the last couple of years. That can be broken into a couple of different buckets, Jay. One of them is in the largest source, about 340,000 barrels a day was a facility called Philadelphia Energy Solutions. That was the East Coast's largest refinery. As the name implies, it was in Philadelphia. That facility is shut down, decommissioned. That's never coming back, ever, ever coming back. The bulk of the others have been conversions. And there have been policies out there one, the renewable fuel standard. California has a policy called the low carbon fuel standards that have really incentivized facilities going away from traditional fossil fuels into renewable fuels. I think our industry has invested 15, 16 billion dollars over the last few years into making this conversion into renewable diesel in particular. Once you start down that path, I mean, again, these are not light switches. As you know, with your background, you can just flip and go back. They're not coming back. And the problem with that is, I mean, it's a good thing. And our industry supports renewable diesel and other renewable fuels. We're heavily invested. Consumers want it. Our facilities want to meet that need. But you don't get a one-to-one volume. If you shut down a 100,000 barrel per day facility and convert it into renewable diesel, you're only getting a third of that back in the way of volume. But to answer your question, none of these shutdowns with the exception of one called Lime Tree Bay Refining in the U.S. Virgin Islands, that's the only one that I could see in the time horizon we're talking about to make a difference that could actually come back online. And I know Lime Tree is trying, but the others, those conversions or shutdowns are going to be permanent. They're never coming back. Just so we understand, I've been trying to take notes here on all this, and I believe you said that we have the refining capacity to meet our daily Mm -hmm. consumption, yeah? Are we importing any gasoline or diesel, like refined petroleum products in the United States? I think we just assume that we refine and consume all the crude here. No, we do import gasoline and diesel into the country, and that's largely a function of our refining capacity not being perfectly situated where the demand is. Let me cut to the chase, Jay. We have a lot of refining capacity down on the Gulf Coast in particular, and then we have this high demand corridor in the Northeast where we don't have much refining. From a efficiency standpoint, believe it or not, and because of pesky policies like something called the Jones Act, where you can't 
ship products in the United States, unless they're on a Jones Act vehicle, very expensive. Those policies actually make it cheaper for the East Coast to import refined products from Europe and other places to the East Coast than it would be for the Gulf Coast to ship up the coast. The most efficient flow of product is that we actually export product from the Gulf Coast to other parts of the world, but we actually import products from Europe and other places to meet the daily needs of Pad 1, as we call it, which is the Northeast. Import it from friendly places, right? All that talk of Russia and everything. Mostly friendly places. We used to get some product from Russia, but I'm proud to say that our industry within days of Russia's invasion of Ukraine voluntarily stopped bringing in Russia crude and Russia refined products. We did that long before any policymaker suggested to us that we should, but that's something I'm really proud of our members for doing. And that did put the market a little bit further out of balance, but we've adjusted and we adjusted pretty quickly. Sure. So you mentioned a place in the Virgin Islands, I believe, that had refining capacity, but not much as far as options. Other than bringing capacity back online, is there anything refiners can do to help lower gas prices or is in the ball another court? The best thing that we can do is continuing to make as much as we can make. And again, I'm telling you that we're doing that. What happens is when you run as hard as we've been running, units go down and they go down unexpectedly and we're bringing them back online. If that's why our number hovers in the mid 90s, if that didn't happen, we'd be almost all out. So the number one thing that we need to lower gas prices, and you've been seeing it over the last few weeks, is we need crude oil prices to come down and they have been. If crude prices come down, gasoline and diesel prices will follow. It's just a market reality, and we're seeing that. We also need to continue to build inventories. We're doing that. I said we're producing more than we're using, and so we're building gas and diesel reserves back up. In fact, I saw just the other day that U.S. gasoline reserves are only about 5 or 6% below five-year averages. So we're building it back up, and in time, hopefully, we'll get balanced again, and you'll see the price of the pump continue to improve for drivers. Sure. And so let's talk about oil prices and support. I know we always hear that there's not very much the United States can do. It's based on a global price. So if the United States drilled more domestically, mm-hmm. would that lower the price at home? And you mentioned, I do have a background in fracking. I spent a lot of years doing that. So what if they just went gangbusters out in the oil patch? Well, you know, we certainly believe that have been advocating for this administration to adopt policies to take advantage of our natural resources. We're blessed with a huge supply of crude oil and natural gas, and we should be utilizing that. You know, I've heard the administration suggest that crude oil production in the country is as high as it's ever been. That's simply not true. We're about a million barrels a day lower today than we were pre-COVID. We should certainly be promoting that production because it would help with the overall global supply of crude, which will help meet global demand, which will bring prices down. It's silly for anyone to suggest anything other than that, frankly. Right. One of the things the administration's been talking about a lot is the oil and gas operators have a bunch of leases, right? They have a bunch of leases. They could be using them. What do you say about that? Well, what we point out is having a lease is different than having a permit to drill. And having a permit to drill is different than having the infrastructure to get it from the well to the refinery. Okay. And so I know you know this. They aren't the same things. We need better infrastructure. We need permitting reform. We'd certainly like to see Congress actually take up what Senator Manchin says is part of the deal, which is NEPA reform and infrastructure permitting reform. We need that desperately in this country. And again, a lease to drill does not actually do anything to bring oil to the surface and ultimately get it to a refinery and turn it into products that people can actually use. 
are people reporting it being more difficult to get permits, I guess, in the last 18 months since the new administration took over? I think that's a fair readout of what's happening in the field. Sure thing. This is probably the most walky question I've got. A friend of mine, we had coffee the other day. He said, be sure to ask Chet this. There's a provision in the 2015 omnibus bill that allows us to export crude oil. So the president, he could stop that at any time. If we stopped exporting crude oil, would that make any difference in price? Would that maybe bolster up our production and help lower prices at home? Any thoughts on that? I have lots of thoughts on that. And contrary to what may be someone's instinctive reaction to that, it would actually make things worse. Creating a prohibition on both crude exports and refined product exports, we hear that floated around a lot in D.C. as well. And again, that will make things worse. A big driver for the price of crude right now is meeting global demand. And if the U.S. produced less, that put greater pressure on global demand. And what would happen? Prices would go up. And by banning exports, it would give our domestic EMP companies less financial incentive to drill more. And you actually see that they're going to drill less, which would then raise the price even of domestic crude in certain markets, including, like I mentioned, on the East Coast, right? On the East Coast, we're relying on importing refined products to meet that demand. And if global crude prices went up and global refined prices went up, we're going to end up having it worse for certain parts of the country. That would be a really bad idea. Jay, one of the things that we advocate in this town all the time to this administration is a Above all, do no harm. Try to do no harm. And that falls into policies that would make the current situation worse. It sounds to me like that'd be a little bit counterproductive, I guess. Hey, Chet, what is going on with the Strategic Petroleum Reserve? It sounds to me like they've been using it as a way to maybe soften the blow with oil and gas prices. That just seems very dangerous. When they first made the announcement, Jay, we were frankly somewhat agnostic. We weren't opposed to releasing product from the reserve, but we certainly wanted people to understand that it was not going to move the needle much. In a hundred million barrels a day world market, releasing one million barrels a day from the reserve was not going to move the needle much. And eventually, as you know, if you take product out of the reserve, you're going to have to eventually put product back in the reserve and that's going to have the opposite effect. So again, we were pretty agnostic. It was okay, do it, but it's not going to help much. You've responded to the administration's comments on refining back in June. I'll link those comments so everyone can read it after the podcast. It appears you met with Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm about a week later after that. How did those conversations go with the secretary? Where do you go from here? You've alluded to it. We certainly weren't pleased with the assertions made in the letter that the president sent to several of our members, again, suggesting strongly that we weren't doing our part in addressing high fuel prices. And again, we take exception to that. We were running all out. We met both with the deputy secretary and several of our members met with the secretary. And look, I would say the meetings were productive and professional, and we shared our vantage point on this, and they shared theirs. And then we've kind of both moved on, frankly. Yeah. Uh, Chet, was there anything you could tell that maybe was an eye-opener on their side? It wasn't a much an eye-opener. I'll tell you the inherent conflict in their message, Jay. And what we get from this administration is, hey, we need your help. And why aren't you investing more right now to lower gas prices? And then in the other side of their mouth, say they need our help 
accelerating the transition away from fossil fuels. And they don't seem to fully recognize the conflict there, that the investment and resources that are needed to address some of these on the longer term are not consistent with an accelerated transition away from fossil fuels. And, you know, again, who in the right mind would make those type of long-term investments if they're not going to get support from the U.S. government and the capital markets for us to be able to get a return on those investments? It does not make much sense. So I always am surprised that if they recognize it, they put their poker face on that they don't really recognize <laughs> recognize the conflict in their statements and their positions. Yeah, it just sounds like there seems to be a disconnect in building that bridge, right? It's cut off cheap oil and gas now. Let's go to electric vehicles, but only 1% of the cars in the country are electric vehicles. <laughs> By the way, you can't get one. It doesn't seem like there's any mercy in trying to create a transition period, right? It's just make everything expensive now, transition now, the pain is worth it. Yeah, I think that's right. And the other thing, and I know you know this, but our industry is committed to sustainability. We talk a lot in our industry about the dual challenge we face, Jay, and that is our challenge to provide not only our country, but the world with the products that we think make human life better. But we also have the challenge to meet that need in a sustainable way. And we are serious about that. Before I was in this position, you know, I've practiced environmental law for decades. I've spent time in the Environmental Protection Agency. I can tell you our members care a lot about that. And we've invested over $100 billion with a B over the last decade to reduce our emissions, to become more fuel efficient, to invest in making low carbon marine fuels and lower carbon transportation fuels and investment in renewable diesels and all kinds of things. I mean, we're out there. We're on the front lines trying to make things better, but we can't blink away the reality. We don't call it a transition. We call it an evolution. We're not opposed to getting to some place in time where carbon emissions are lower, but we need to be smart about it. And we need to continue to meet the needs of people all around the world for whom our products make life better and safer and healthier and cleaner. Yeah. Chet, it almost seems like unless prices are sky high, we'll never make any sort of transition. I get it. And look, I worked for a group called the Clean Coal Technology Foundation of Texas. We were doing carbon capture and storage technology. Our members were all utilities like AEP and TXU. This is down in Austin. We took it seriously, carbon capture and storage. So what do you think about that? Is there some sort of middle ground where, okay, more transition into electric vehicles, but you have an affordable price at the pump. Everybody's healthy. and I think so. I mean, you mentioned carbon capture. You know, we certainly support carbon capture use and sequestration. A lot of our members have signed on to the project that ExxonMobil has been proposing down in the Houston Energy Corridor about ways to capture and sequester carbon. We are supportive of all these things, but we also believe, back to the balance I said, we also have to continue to meet the energy needs of the United States and our consumers. And the last couple months, has been a great example of this. And, you know, hopefully we've learned some lessons over this. We've learned some lessons, what we might be experiencing, that some of our allies find themselves in Europe, where some of their desires have gotten ahead of the realities of the situation. And we just have to be careful. I don't think you need to be all in one camp or all in the other. And I know that our industry isn't. And the narrative that we're anti these sorts of projects is false. But we are about finding the right balance going forward. Chet, what does the industry need from the government at this time? 
as I alluded to, what we really need is for them not to move forward with policies that will make it worse. We certainly hope things like export bans of crude or refined products or the windfall profit tax that was making its way around the hill. We hope those things are dead and gone. We need the administration to recognize and promote an all of the above strategy to meet our energy needs of this country. We need capital markets to be open to the investment that we need to meet our energy needs. And we need to eliminate regulations that make it harder. You know, I've alluded to it. Some of the reasons that the refineries shut down, Jay, are because of the very policies that this administration keeps pushing. Policies like the renewable fuel standard is one. Policies that raise the cost of production. And we need to make sure that we don't make those situations worse. We've gone from a world where we had north of 300 refineries in this country down to 125, 130, give or take. Hopefully, we have learned over the last year that refineries are national assets. They're important to our communities. They're important for good jobs. And they're important to supplying the fuels that we need as a country to thrive. And hopefully policymakers will start to look at our industry and be reminded that we're assets, frankly, that most of the world would love to have. And we ought to be fighting to keep our industry strong. Even if you buy in to the need for a transition, fine. Let's not transition away until we're ready. Right. Assuming that it's not just malice. (laughs) At the end of the day, what do you think the administration's goal is here? I'll let them speak for themselves. I think the policies they've advocated identify what their goals are. Yeah, yeah. This recent Inflation Reduction Act, did it have anything for oil and gas refiners, the oil and gas industry to help out? Listen, we would have preferred that this bill not have gotten legs and passed. Earlier versions of the bill worse for us and the manufacturers generally, yes. There are some things in there that I guess some of our members may benefit from in the way of some tax credits for biofuel production and carbon capture use and sequestration. There are other things that are going to put pressure on the price of energy in this country, as you know, better than I. I should ask you questions of what you think about this. But in the oil and gas side, you look at things like the methane fee, that's not going to be helpful, to be sure. We don't support some of the tax credits that go to electric vehicles. We think that the market should decide the best path forward. Think given tax credits for people to buy really expensive electric vehicles is not the best use of taxpayer resources and dollars. We think that's probably the least efficient way to make carbon reductions here. So the bill is certainly not something we support. I guess if I'm trying to be charitable, it could have been worse. Could have been worse. Let's talk a little bit about what the refining industry is working on at this time. I've heard efforts about carbon capture, as we've talked about. I've also seen there's an interesting technology, BASF, on electric crackers that I think would maybe make it a little bit cleaner, I suppose. What can you tell us about that? I mean, the the industry really has tried to make some gains there, right? Yeah, cracking, that gets into the petrochemical side of the house. And if you're going to look for ways to get substantial carbon reductions from petrochemicals and cracking units, the major way to do that is going to electric crackers and also going to a cleaner grid, if you will. You know, those are the major things longer term. But to convert that industry to electric cracking is certainly going to be a long haul project and very expensive. But our industry is committed to finding ways, again, to continue to lower carbon emissions and to become 
cleaner. The other things the pet cam industry is doing, you know, we're pursuing advanced recycling. We absolutely are committed to addressing the inappropriate disposal of plastic wastes. And one of the ways to do that is to certainly, one, prevent the waste streams from getting into the environment to begin with. And another is to find ways to use waste plastic as commodities and bring it back into the stream of commerce, making it feed into new product. And so a circular economy. And part of that is coming through advanced recycling. I'm so proud of our members and the amount of advancement they've made there and the resources. So you're going to see that on the refining side, Jay, like I've mentioned, we've had substantial investments over the year in our industry and in renewable fuels, things like biodiesel and renewable diesel and algae-based fuels. You're now seeing big investments in our industry to what they call sustainable aviation fuels to help reduce the carbon emissions from air travel. That's the kind of things that our industry is going to continue to focus on is how do we continue our drive to make our products in a cleaner way, a safer way to become long-term sustainable? How do we continue to support our communities all across the country and all the communities and jobs that depend on a thriving industry? industry. And I'm so proud of the way our members are there for their communities and continue to be there. So we got a lot of work to be done. We're committed to doing things in the right way and to be here certainly for many, many decades to come. No doubt. And look, I mean, one of the reasons I want to talk to you, Chess, because we really would grind to a halt if it weren't for your industry and its members. All right, Chet Thompson, AFPM, thank you so much for your time. Jay, thanks for having me. Happy to be here and we'll talk soon. That was Chet Thompson, president and CEO of the American Fuel and Petrochemical Manufacturers, the association representing the refining industry. Chet mentioned that refinery in the U.S. Virgin Islands, Lime Tree, it's big able to produce about 650,000 barrels per day. But it's been plagued with environmental issues and is currently closed under orders from the EPA. New owners want to reopen at 180,000 barrels a day. The EPA administrator, while recently on a Journey to Justice tour, said the agency is under, quote, no pressure to reopen that refinery. Respectable, now get to work. I want to thank Leah Palazzo at AFPM for setting this up. You can also find plenty of pictures for this episode on energy-cast.com as well as on Instagram at Host Energy and Twitter at Host Energy Cast. All guests are sent the wrong completed audio the week of release. So far, no complaints. Be sure to leave us a positive view on iTunes. That gets the word out. Music was produced by Sean Stroop at Stroop Loops. That wraps up episode 146. Be sure to join us next week when we learn how community-based solar is creating opportunities for new projects. Until then, I'm Jay Dauenhauer. We'll see you next time.